0: Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this?
1: This call is being recorded.
0: Hey, squash fans, we got a little quick hit for you. And it's that time of the year again, and in fact, one of the favorite times of years for so many squash fans and family. This is just as the college squash season is getting underway. To get some firsthand information, my co-host Bill Buckingham and I invited on David Pullman, who is the executive director of the College Squash Association. In this quick hit, we cover the new initiatives David and the board of directors are helping to push out, which include helping new teams get to the varsity level. David gives us a sense of what this season is gonna look like and feel like with the challenges of COVID still looming. We also hear a little bit about what the landscape of recruiting looks like these days. We even talk about the tradition of college intros. What could they look like as we aim towards the future? It's always a pleasure having David on and as he mentions in the show, if anyone is interested to learn more, head to the College Squash website, which is CSASquash.com. Loaded up there are the team's season previews to give you the latest information. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or Padell because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Hey, Squash fans, welcome back to another episode on Squash Radio. We're excited to have this guest here today, who is David Pullman, the executive director of College Squash, otherwise known as the CSAs. So welcome to the show, David.
2: Thanks for having me, gentlemen.
0: Of course, we also have my co-host, Bill Buckingham. How are you doing, Bill? Hey, Connor. How's it going? It's nice to be on a, on your show. So what we wanted to do here today is, as some of the the Squash fans know, the college season is now underway. And the last time you were probably tuning into this kind of stuff was uh, back last uh, March, which was a challenging time given COVID. And what happens in the offseason is that an entire body of work goes on with the coaches and with David Pullman, who helps kind of shape the season coming up. So there's a, a few highlights we want to go through. But let's talk a little bit about during the off offseason. What is your focus been between yourself and the board of what you're trying to get ready for the season?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Um, strategic planning is, is a big one, talking about strategic goals for the future of college squash. And a couple of big ones are coming down the pike and college squash fans and squash fans in general will hear more about um, a couple of initiatives we have coming along. One is what we're calling our 40-40 by 2030 initiative. So we're, we're really aiming to uh, reach a level of 40 men's and 40 women's varsity teams by the year 2030. We're currently going into the season with 34 men's varsity teams and 32 women's varsity teams, so we have a ways to go uh, in the kind of next nine, eight or nine-year period. And it's not going to happen in a vacuum. You know, we're really uh, excited to work with the community at large to identify key decision makers, raise funds, and and look to how we can accomplish that goal. Uh, the other exciting thing coming down the pike is the 100th anniversary of intercollegiate squash. Back in 1923, uh, Harvard and Yale played the first intercollegiate squash match. And so in 2023, which is about uh, 16 to 18 months from now, we're, we're going to be looking to celebrate that and there'll be more information coming out. So there's a lot of, um, future planning, but there's also, there's, there's more near-term planning as well around um, the upcoming season. Obviously we've been tracking on, the pandemic and the Delta variant this past summer for a while earlier in the summer things. Looked like we were going to be right on track. Then the Delta variant popped up, and it caused some some concern, to be sure, and some bumps in the road. But Delta variant cases are coming down again, and we're now just sort of two weeks out from our first varsity matches. And um, there's a lot of preparation and planning that goes into the season, both uh, by the CSA and, and by the coaches and the players who are involved, especially those who have been out of play for over a year.
0: In terms of touching on the goal of where you're trying to go 40 by 40 by 2030, there's been some movement of what programs have a varsity status and what programs lost them. And there's actually been, it's been both, uh, how you say, nerve wracking, but also some really positive steps. So can you talk about what some of the big movements were during the off
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So um, it really started kind of the early stages of the pandemic. And there was a, a run of a couple institutions that announced that they were uh, moving their varsity teams to club status. It started with Brown University, uh, men's and women's squash, then Stanford moving their women's team. and and those are two two, um, you know widely known institutions around the country. and and so two big blows for us for sure. Uh, and George Washington University also decided to transition their team. So off the bat, we had in a relatively short amount of time, we had lost five programs, um, which was tough. But then there was there was a bit of a, a fight back, which is what you always like to see. We had, uh, in that meantime, while those cuts were happening, we also had some great movement um from some of our other teams. So, for example, Georgetown University announced that they're they were moving their women's team from club to varsity. Chatham University women in, in Pittsburgh were starting up a varsity team, and then Denison University in in Ohio was also moving their club teams, both men and women, to varsity. So then there was a fight back with the teams that were cut we were fortunate to help out with stanford's push and the women's team was reinstated there so coming out of the pandemic uh we were actually plus one in terms of teams um uh, kind of uh, almost net neutral it wasn't all bad news we in fact are coming into the season with some new teams and we're really excited about that We got some challenging news at the beginning of this year. Dickinson College in central Pennsylvania initially announced that they were going to be moving their teams to club status. But again, the fight back occurred largely on uh, Title IX grounds um, and gender equity purposes. And they pretty quickly, actually, in the grand scheme of how these things work, very quickly, the women's team was reinstated to varsity status. And there's still some quite a bit of ongoing push, both uh, on our part and part of the, the parents and the Dickinson community to get the men's program back to varsity status as well. So it's something that's, um, that's really caught our attention and really, I think, heightened our focus on what we need to do to solidify our standing on campuses uh, amongst decision-makers, and how we can build new programs as well.
0: What have you seen as the ingredients for success for taking either a school that has no program or is a club program and going to the varsity status? Like, What would you lay out as a blueprint of what could be successful for those teams converting to varsity status?
2: It's a really tough question, Connor, because we've found that there's no silver bullet answer, Uh, and it's something we've talked about in other areas as well for example a huge infusion of money still may not move the needle for some campus decision makers Um, diversity and equity and access is a big part of what the future of of squash in the united states it's it's a key part of what we do during the downtime with the pandemic we did some research and found that uh, over 40 percent of our student athletes are people of color and that's a narrative that i think flies in the face of what some preconceived notions around the country and so um Adding the equity and access piece is, is a big part of it for us and, and pointing to that. But that, that alone will not necessarily move the needle for a lot of institutions. So the big thing that we found is one is gender equity. Georgetown adding a women's program is indicative of that. Um, Stanford bringing their women's program back to varsity status is indicative of that, and so if there are institutions or athletic departments that we can identify that, are, um, that have a low barrier to entry and, and have some needs on the gender equity front, those are ones that we're, we're eager to target for future conversations. But, you know, having a facility is a big part of it as well, having close access, whether it's on campus or nearby. Georgetown, for example, had Squash on Fire uh, right near campus and had a standing arrangement with them. So that was a huge bonus for their move. So like I said, there's no silver bullet answer. It's really tailored and focused on what the needs of the institution are. Gender equity may not move the needle for others, and so we have to find other ways to enter into conversations about what might be meaningful to a certain school. as we're looking at prospects to fulfill the our 40 by 40 and 40 by 2030 initiative, we're hyper-focused on the needs of the institutions and, and seeing how, where we can meet them with those goals.
1: So, David, um, talking about this upcoming season, obviously with streaming and things such as that, that has come a long way, but College Squash, the in-game experience, the fans experience, fans being in the building— a huge part of our sport, and specifically at the college level, probably the most popular when it comes to uh, fan engagement in, in our country, anyways, more popular than PSA squash. It's argue, you know, it could be argued with the Delta variant with COVID. How does that look this season uh, for people to be able to go to arenas and into uh, squash venues and, and enjoy the matches?
2: So it's a bit of a, um, a moving target, um, but I think we're lucky in that a lot of the institutions have had a fall season to experience athletic events on campus both with or without spectators. Uh, We're also lucky in that the the case rate and the comfort level with the the number of cases that are around is coming down uh, at at this time. Now we're all moving indoors, so that, that could, you know, raises some concern that it could go, restrictions could go back up. But schools are starting to react, relax a little bit and implementing policies that will allow at least some fans into the buildings. You know, the vaccines also have helped in terms of giving people peace of mind and giving administrators peace of mind about letting people in the building. So they, they may be able to provide access for those who can show proof of vaccination or, or negative tests. So we've put out a, a set of COVID-related guidelines to our member institutions and our conferences. And we're talking with them regularly about what's happening and hopeful that as the winter season progresses, we can continue to kind of open things up and get to the point where by the time the championships come along, we're in areas where we can have uh, you know, as many spectators as, we, as possible that's, that's safe and, and healthy for the student athletes and the coaches.
1: Sure, and, and not to throw just this use case scenario, saying we'll take a school like Yale, and again, I don't know their policies, I don't know any school's policies. So Yale it doesn't allow fans, let's just say, I don't know if they do or not, doesn't allow fans, yet Trinity does. How does that work with a school that will allow fans and a school that won't allow fans with teams traveling between those two schools? It makes no sense really for Yale to go play at Trinity with fans if they're not allowing fans at their school. How is that adjudicated? How are you have you run into that? Um you don't have to specifically name schools, and how
2: are you dealing with that? We have not run into a specific case of that yet. However, as a you know, varsity matches have not kicked off yet. We'll we'll be running into that in the next few weeks, and we'll see how it goes. You know, we've been talking about it actively for the last couple months to see how we might come across that. Some of the policies are being updated, kind of as we speak. I know there was an update to one school's policy lat- just last week that went in a more positive direction as far as fans are concerned. And so one thing that we've encouraged uh, our coaches to do, and and their administrators are already doing a great job of this because again, going with the, uh, the fall season already in full swing, they're, they're used to communicating with other schools, visiting schools about what their policies are, what their expectations are. And so there's been a lot of community building, I think across campuses about the best ways to to have teams on campus, have spectators on campus and so on. So the, Those conversations are ongoing and we're going to do the best as possible to help broker those conversations if they need it. But really, you know, we've encouraged a lot of prior communication, transparency about this sort of thing on the back end. You know, we, amongst the CSA and the coaches group or the, the group that I communicate with the most, we have we have shared Google Docs. We have uh, shared conversations regularly about these sorts of policies. And, and so we're eager to try it out. And and I'm, as an sort of independent arbiter, I'm eager to step in and, and help try and broker some things if, if necessary. But I have confidence that uh, our coaches and our administrators are, you know, they're so keen to get back on on court and, and have competitions that they'll do what they can to uh, to make it happen.
1: So when it comes to testing protocols and things like that, and we'll get off of this and get into more fun squash soon enough. But uh, when it comes to testing protocols and things like that, is it up to the school or is the CSA legislate? Hey, 72 hours before, blah, blah, blah. Or is it school by school, uh, university by university, conference by conference?
2: We have some baseline recommendations that are in line. We've taken bits and pieces from US squashes regulations, from NCA regulations and conference regulations, the Ivy League, the NESCAC, the Liberty League, those are all um, our partners in this as well. And so, you know, we are asking um, that all players be um, vaccinated. There's a vaccine mandate to play. But if they have filed for uh, an exemption through their school that's been approved, then, then we'll accept that. And they, you know, the expectation is that they follow the school's testing protocol to play. And so it's, it's a bit of a partnership. We have a limited amount of control over that because there, there are these individual pockets uh, or individual schools and localities that are making rules. But again, we're, we're just trying to be collaborative and make the best of a, of a challenging situation so that our players can play, which is for us, it's really about maximizing the student athlete experience and and making sure that they, you know, after having a, a year with pretty much no college squash whatsoever, giving them the opportunities to play.
0: With coming into the season, I can imagine COVID protocols and, and this challenges and trying to stage national championships, kind of like known challenges that you're, you're going to try and undertake. Has there been any curveballs coming up that have been like suddenly peeking its head just as the season's getting started? Like, wow, uh, I didn't think that would be happening.
2: Nothing major yet, but, uh, you know, I'm constantly, yeah, definitely keeping all fingers and toes crossed that that doesn't, nothing too major comes away. Um, yeah. You know, the, the beauty of working in college athletics is every year is different. You get a new set of kids, a new, you know, a new set of coaches, and you just never know what's going to come along. So you kind of have to be nimble. Well along those
0: lines you know here we've been talking about sort of what's going on during the season and there's a huge part of this of of student athletes trying to get into the schools and so the recruiting process is is underway and we know some of the changes and the adaptations that coaches have done but what is this recruiting season looking like for these juniors and seniors coming in?
2: Oh you know, before I get into that I just the one thing that and this is related to your question so I'll hopefully Bring it all together, but two birds, one stone. um, Yeah, (laughs) the biggest, I think, um, I don't even know. It's not a challenge or an issue. It's just going to be really interesting. Is the players who took, who maybe took some time off during the pandemic and have come Mm. back and rejoined rosters Um, Mm. this year? We don't really have a great sense of you know top favorites. There are many teams on both the men's and the women's side who can compete for conference and national championships. The depth and the the, um, the talent level is is going to be incredibly high this year because a lot of top players are are coming back and schools have lost players but they've also filled in with a lot of eager players who who have been coming in uh, and been missing the chance to play team squash for a long time and so um, I think there's going to be a lot of movement you're going to see very close matches and and a lot of exciting stuff and. I think for me, that's just, it's exciting and its it'll be an interesting, interesting decisions on how to promote that and how to talk about that and going into the championships. I think it's going to make for a really exciting time. Um, To your question about recruiting, because some of those players have come back, I think some people would think that some of the positions or might not be as available, but I haven't seen that too much. It might be limited, uh, you know, by a spot or two here or there. Uh, with some schools, but from what I'm seeing, and, and, and fans, if you're interested, you can check out the CSA website, csasquash.com. We're doing team previews of every team over the next couple of weeks. We're about halfway through, so you can see the players who have come in, the players who have graduated over the last two years, and um, and get a sense of where the rosters are. But I think um, this year is going to be a unique year. The last year and this year, kind of together, are a unique time where rosters are kind of kind of maxed out. Uh, they're going to be bigger than than we've seen before. And then a lot of players will will graduate and we'll move on and, uh, and we'll be back to kind of similar roster sizes. And the, so the junior community who's looking to be recruited, um, schools are going to be filling those positions as they have in the past. And so um, there might be some residual effects, but overall, I, I think it's it's as good as it's ever going to be. And it's just more challenging because the level is is keeps getting higher and higher.
1: On the international side of things, typically, um, you know, these coaches go out to the British Junior Open, they go to the World Team Championships, and things such as that. Obviously, with those events being canceled, recruiting's been a little bit different, especially on the international. I'm sure domestically also. How has that worked? You've taught you have a coaches group. Have you talked to them about that? Has it been mostly video streaming and things such as that? And, and that's got to be a little different because to see someone on TV is a little bit different than meeting that player in person. So just talk a little bit about what you've heard from the coaches about how the process has been changed this year.
2: It definitely has been different. It's definitely been a challenge without having the the possibilities to go to travel internationally, to see players. I think the, You know the U.S. Open Championships coming up in December will be a good opportunity for coaches to kind of touch base again. One thing I will say is, is recruiting is a really fluid and ongoing process with the coaches.
0: Do you mean right now or just in general? No,
2: always, always. Um, It has been and will continue to be a a fluid and ongoing process. And so the coaches are even when they were able to travel. I mean, it it feels like the pandemic has been here forever, but it's been around for eighteen months and. Uh, the last time the coaches were able to, to travel abroad to see international players was, was relatively speaking, not that long ago. And so they saw players at world juniors or British juniors and places like that U S open juniors when they were younger, even though they may not have been able to talk to them. Um, they certainly took note they certainly were watching play. They certainly have been checking results for those who've been able to play during the pandemic. And so while the, um, well, the process of seeing players in person has changed during the pandemic. They still have, I think, the coaches still have confidence that they're they're tracking on on people. They are seeing videos. You know, videos are becoming much more omnipresent and available to players. Coaches want to see competitive matches, though, so they don't just want to see a, a highlight clip of your best shots. You know, that's not coaches want to see. So I think I think the part where the coaches are missing the most is uh, recruiting. For them, is is so much more than just results-based or just the play or the stroke on court. A lot of it is character and fit and, and, and academics and, and kind of the whole package. And so the part that they're missing the most is the ability to interact with um, the players directly, the ability to watch them, how they carry themselves um, off court as well as on court, how they interact with their parents or their coaches or the referees, things like that. Those are the parts that I think the differentiators may be a little bit that they might be missing. But overall, it's, it's I think, that fluid process and the fact that they've they've been able to see these players from the time that they were you know, much younger and, and observe them playing at that point. They can kind of see the, the seeds of where these players can grow into, and they're, they're using that to their advantage as well.
0: Along the lines of recruiting, because this is basically the coaches trying to find these players that will fill their roster, I think we have to take a, a quick time out to like acknowledge there's been so many changes to the coaches in CSAs in the past couple months. It's a kind of changing in the guard and there are certainly positions available and there's been a lot of changeover. So, I mean, without going into any sort of detail, how does that impact the fabric of college squash right now?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, that changing of the guard is probably a good, uh, a pretty apt description There have been some long tenured coaches that have now moved on and some younger coaches, uh, former assistants and former players have come in and taken their place. And so it adds a nice balance and it helps me because it's a fresh set of eyes. It's a fresh set of opinions to make sure that we're doing the right thing by the kids, by the by the coaches. And so. I think it's only works to help you know help us because they have these experiences interacting with the new generation of kids in some cases they've come up with them they've played with them they've they've coached them in in other areas so i think it's really great major shout outs to folks like dave talbot who have retired and and sort of the the forebearers and a lot a lot of them are still coaching with us and are great mentors for me for our young coaching staff you know don't, I, don't, I don't like to try and list because I inevitably I'll leave people out, but you know we have a really, really strong mix right now of coaches who have been doing this for a really long time and are great mentors to all of us and, um, and young up and coming folks who are really eager, who are working their tails off to raise the profile of their programs and are being given new opportunities, which is really exciting.
1: So, David, I know you can't say this on a podcast, but blink twice when you show me how excited you are in 10 years from when all those old school coaches are actually gone and you have this new crop of coaches that, uh, that are, have been brought up under the Pullman regime.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, um, you know, the institutional memory in the history of having some of these coaches around is really critical for because I'm, you know, I'm on the younger side uh, for sure. And I don't have the full scope of everything, and so when some of them reach out to me and say, oh, "I don't know if you want to do that," we tried that before; it doesn't work so well. You know, that's a good reminder for me. And so, it, you know, it's like I said, it's a, it's a really good balance. I I just am grateful they've supported me incredibly well, top to bottom. And um, I think they're really keen to have an independent arbiter to to help drive things so they can focus on recruiting and coaching. and it's not necessarily me, but but having someone in this in this role has been really critical and helpful for them to refocus their energies on what they really want to do and what they've gotten into. So you know I'm grateful for their support um, and hoping for for more great things.
1: Sure. And, and squash, um, just on the forefront of gender equity, seeing two women. Now being head men's and women's coaches in the Ivy League, I believe they're the first to coach both men's and women's teams in the Ivy League. Uh, Lin Leong at Yale and uh, Joanne uh, Schipperling at uh, at Columbia. What a great thing for the game! What a great thing for for women's sports!
2: Uh, it's monumental. Uh, I'm I'm so excited for both Lin and, and Joanne. They're they're two. Uh, really accomplished and, and prepared uh, individuals who I, I think are really going to crush it in, the, in their new roles. And I hope it inspires other other women in squash to, to get involved in coaching. They're doing a great job and and they're coming on the heels of other great women who have gotten into coaching and, and led both men's and women's teams. We have others as well, you know, Shona Kerr at, at Wesleyan, Wendy Lawrence, Carol Weimoller. You know, the list goes, the list does go go pretty far back, but to have two, as you said, Bill, uh, two in the Ivy League right now is is amazing. And and we want more of those women to, uh, to see coaching as a, a great avenue forward because, you know, junior players, uh, much like uh, I think a lot of... Uh, In sport, in general, they like to see uh, someone like themselves, you know, as a leader and someone who's doing great things for the sport. And so the more uh, women's coaches that we can grow and hopefully on the backs of success like Lynn and Joanne are having. Uh, the better off the sport will be, and, and we can drive that. Uh, I know that's a another joint goal of of ours, and long, along with US Squash, is to increase participation in, in coaching opportunities for women and girls. And having standard bearers like Lynn and Joanne in their in their positions right now is is a phenomenal start. In that,
0: there does seem to be an inherent catch twenty two. When I've read a lot of these college descriptions for what they're hiring, it's like must have college experience. And as we look to infuse new talent that's the catch-22. How are we going to address that as a sport?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, part of it is targeting some folks uh, you know, early on in their career, both their college career and if they're coming out of PSA, giving them opportunities. And it's also a, a bigger challenge. The more and more opportunities aren't going to come if athletic departments don't get on board. So this flies us really up to the high level of where do we want to see squash stationed on campuses and, and helping campus decision makers understand the value that squash can bring to their athletics department portfolio and the, of teams and it points to uh, you know another topic that I know a lot of people are curious about and that's NCAA uh, sponsorship or, or recognition and that's something that we're looking at closely. The NCA has been on a bit of a moratorium with their emerging sports program the last couple of years during the pandemic and they they have several challenges that they're working through as an organization themselves. So we're tracking on that stuff very closely and eager to jump at the chance if it's the right move for CSA. But having that sort of recognition, whether it's the NCAA or the Olympic sports movement, the USOPC and the NCA are partnering right now on a think tank to try and um, try and solidify the sustainability of Olympic sports. And if squash can get involved in that movement, I think that would be a big help. And if more women see it as a, as a destination uh, and a cool thing to get into uh, as, a, as a real viable option post-college, I think we'll build up more, more equity on campuses as well.
1: The big programs, the varsity programs get a lot of the press and get a lot of the attention, but I I noticed this year there's, there seems to be a renewed focus uh, on club squash. So the, the programs, and I noticed that the CSA is hosting the club national championships separately from the men's and women's championship. The weekends, those teams tended to get a little bit lost. At those big weekends, it was fun for them to see the high quality of play and maybe aspire to that, but you're also playing at the satellite venues until the very end. So this time they do get to play on the big stage from the beginning. So talk about the thought process behind bringing the club squash championships in, in as a solo entity.
2: We are really excited about the club team squash championships. Um, it's a new event and something we, tr- we were planning on launching last year but of course none of our championships were able to take place so this will be our first year and you you hit the nail on the head we we really want to provide a platform for these players these up-and-coming players who are picking up uh, the game a bit later or played in junior squash but chose to go to a school that didn't have a varsity program when we had the team championships all together We'd had upwards of 60, 65 teams in in one one area, and it was becoming unwieldy, and it was becoming unfair for for these student athletes that were working so hard throughout the season to play only to be shuttled to a different venue or, or not really close to the action. And so, what we're doing this year is is creating a whole new event for them. We're really uh, happy to to feature them with um, with photography, social media coverage and everything that goes along with being at a championship event. So we can crown the best club team in the United States on both the men's and the women's side. This year it's going to be at the Spectre Center. So we put them in the prime, newest top facility in the United States to host their event. And, and so we think there's some real value there. And, and what it also does on the varsity side is it shows that being a varsity program is, is a different experience. The schools are making an investment to have varsity programs. And so that's one championship to be a part of. And then if you're going to be a, a club team and, and run it that way, then there's a different set of expectations. There's a different set of qualifying standards and, and you're still going to be celebrated and, and hopefully it's, People can see that, well, you know, they can aspire either to the varsity side or if they know for whatever reasons, and there there certainly are plenty, that varsity program on their campus is not in the cards. They can work to build up their club team and build up their program to aspire to be, you know, one of the best club teams in the country. And and that's something we've seen in other sports. Uh, I'm a big sports fan in general myself. And you see club team championships on ESPN, you know, ultimate Frisbee, hockey, things like that, where for, for some players, that's the that's the epitome. That's the goal. You know where they're looking to the pinnacle, where they're looking to strive for. And and I think we have the ability to create something similar.
1: We could stop recording, and then I could ask David the question, the true question uh, about the the coaches and who still think that college squash could be played in sweater vest and with hardball and wooden rackets. So let's talk about those coaches. that we won't record this.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me. Uh, well, I'll close it out. <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding.
1: So in college sports and pro sports specifically, the lineups. To get introduced at college squash is, is, is a big deal um in pro and pro basketball and college basketball people have made that a thing like it's a scene at the game it's a fan experience college squash has been a little stayed in that where it's still the coach it's still a little bit more for the parents and not really for the fans themselves is there any thought to you know kind of compelling uh schools to make that something that's a little bit more fan friendly and generates a little bit more excitement it's been to me it's always one of the like a big miss on the college squash side that you know there's not like shutting off the lights and a spotlight on when you know they introduced yeah. the starting lineups it could make things a lot more fun has there ever been talk about that or is it there's still like hey this is squash
2: um i'm glad it's a great question i'm glad you brought it up the pandemic has actually given us an opportunity to revisit that and the the intros are are one part of the process you asked earlier about what decisions the schools make versus what the CSA makes. And one area where we have control and we can kind of um, dictate a little bit is things like the team intros, things that impact the logistics of a match day. And we have told coaches uh, because of social distancing in the pandemic that we expect them not to do the old match introductions with everyone on court. I mean, in in certain cases, when you have large teams uh, or teams that are close together where people have traveled, you get over 40 50 people on a court uh, one court at the same time and at this day and age at this time we don't feel like that's the, the smart thing to do and so it, we have asked our coaches to think creatively and and come up with new ways to introduce their lineups or introduce their teams uh, to the fans and right now they have the creative license to do do with that what they what they wish we are, we're not telling them how to do it necessarily, but if they want to take on the charge of getting a light show or a sound system or what have you to make it more interesting and, and fun, then you know, we would encourage that.
1: Great. Great. Yeah. I'd look forward to it. I think in, in pro squash, the, one of the most exciting things about going to a pro squash match is, is the introduction of the players and, you know, the spotlights and they run onto court and then they get on court and start playing and lights come up and it, there's kind of like a, uh, but uh, in college quads, I don't think you'd get that because then everybody spreads out and the matches, you know, there's such a buzz in the uh, in the audience, but it's always been a missed opportunity. So uh, very interesting to, to see what happens.
2: You know, sport presentation is a is a thing that we talk about from time to time. The chair of our board of directors is John Nimick, and he's a, an event promoter and a, someone who sees stuff like this all the time and thinks about stuff like this all the time. And so event presentation is, um, you know, we've had other priorities to try and take care of the foundation. And I think we, we've done a, a decent job of that so far, uh, but now we're growing and we're looking ahead to attracting more eyes, attracting more people to the sport and event presentation is a big part of that. And so now we're in, looking ahead to kind of like the window dressing phase and like, how can we make it more exciting? And there are there are certainly people who, who like the, and, and even some of the kids who like the standard, come to the middle, shake hands, you know, go shake everyone else's hands. Some people still like that and and that's fine. We don't think it's the safe thing to do right now, but there are others who think that it's time to break out and do something different. And I I hope that we see some examples of that um, this year.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks, David. That uh, This has been re- really, really uh, illuminating. And we are—we all missed college squash last year. I mean, I'm sure you missed it more than anyone. But as squash fans, college squash in the United States is, is the pinnacle to, to me anyway. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to get to my first college squash match this year. So uh, thank you very much for giving us the time.
2: Uh, yeah, today. my pleasure. My pleasure. It's great to speak with you guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, David. Really appreciate the time.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us, and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio@gmail.com at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time, and, well, until next time, be well
2: and have fun.